echoing that prayer that wisdom will be given to the president, vice president, and cabinet. And wisdom because, as Solomon prayed for it wisely, he said, I ask for wisdom to govern this so great people. Israel in the time of Solomon was diverse like our nation is. And there's extraordinary wisdom required to govern justly and honorably over a diverse people. So pray that. Paul said we pray this because we want to live lives that are quiet and undisturbed. And if a governmental administration in the United States does, in fact, protect and defend the Constitution per the oath, it then protects us to live our way of life quietly, without disturbance, and without incident. Also, as a, as a pastor, I have to let you know once in a while that I know things about people. And um, one thing I know is that Tim and Fran Jelimi should be congratulated today on behalf of their daughter, Elena, who marched with the Franklin Regional High School band at the inauguration. Okay, you can. She's not here today, but Tim, Tim and Fran, you hardly ever see them because they're doing what I'm, they're working. They're always co laboring with me in the Lord. And that's a good thing. And I appreciate it too. I, I didn't formally thank all of the co laborers that are laboring in prayer and in teaching and in all the gifts of helps and, uh, I should probably take a whole day off and do that someday because there's so many to thank and so much gratitude that I have. I also, as you know, we're all family here. So once in a while, I, this is the only fun I ever have basically is outside of my study. And, and no, I'm only kidding, but I do know things about people. For example, when one third of the Trinity, Claudia said, is it safe to come? Sunday morning in the main auditorium. I think that meant so that you, is it safe so I won't say happy birthday to you? (laughs) Okay, it is. And, but she shares a birthday with Max, her grandson, a very solid young disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, okay, go ahead. it's, It's family. We're family. We're all family. I resolved not to do this, but I keep getting birds singing in my ear and saying, you know, it's so and so's bird. So, if you want to hide yours, and Carla, you wanted to hide yours, so Don, let me know when Carla's birthday is. Um, these are, I have to have some light moments because there's a lot of heavy lifting going on in the study. Also, I know Russell Persinger hiding with your family in a side room somewhere that it's your birthday too. So uh, I see you. Better call Paul. All right, we're going to look, now that you're at Galatians and Romans, we're going to look at Matthew 16. (laughs) Let's uh, keep you on your toes. Matthew 16. Today I want to consider simply the gospel of Paul as a revelation of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ became as we are, that we might become as he is. And we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Only God can reveal God. Preachers should know this. We can't reveal God. We can preach the gospel. We can proclaim the gospel of God about his son. Only God can reveal God properly, distinctly, and definitively. 
Not creation, God, only God reveals God. Matthew chapter 16, the famous Caesarea Philippi incident, Matthew 16, verse 16. I'm only going to pick up here. As you know, they had, Jesus had asked them, who do men say that I am? The son of man. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they gave the various opinions. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, reincarnate, or that prophet, which is closer to the mark. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him saying, how happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah? Because flesh and blood did not reveal, that's our famous word, Apocalypto, apocalypto. And it's a key word in our study of Paul because my question is, can Paul's epistles all told all together in toto represent an apocalypse or a revelation of Jesus Christ? And if so, is that revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance? Is he revealed in this way? Is he revealed as revelation reveals him, as the Lamb of God enthroned? Only God reveals God. How happy are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Only God reveals God. According to John 1.18, no man has ever seen God at any time, but God only begotten has revealed him. Only God reveals God. God the Father reveals Jesus as Messiah, the Son of the living God. God the Father reveals God the Son, Jesus himself. Jesus reveals the Father. God reveals the Son, therefore the Son, Jesus, is God. God reveals God, Christ reveals the Father, therefore Christ is God. If you have seen me, he said, you have seen the Father. One of the great conclusions that all the patristic theologians of the first centuries of the church age discovered, including Athanasius, is that only God can reveal God. The Father revealed Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus reveals God. If you have seen him, you have seen the Father. But even more importantly, if you have seen him lifted up, in John eight twenty eight, you have seen the Father's unrestricted Love. You have seen the Father's unrestricted, self-giving love. God's unrestricted love was revealed to the maximum when Jesus was restricted to the maximum on a Roman cross. 
Now, with that in mind, how happy you are. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. With that in mind, Galatians 1, verse 11. This, of course, goes in tandem with our teachings on Wednesday and Thursday, in which we're getting in a fierce engagement with a false gospel. We're getting into the deep engagement with the guts of the exegesis of the scriptures. And this is supportive of what we've been teaching recently. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. This is my translation from the original Greek text. As careful as I can do it. Paul is speaking. He says, For I'm making known to you, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not according to man. That word according to, kata, literally means it's not down from man. It wasn't handed down from men. The gospel that I preached, Paul said, is not handed down from men. Because neither did I receive it from a man, nor was I taught it. On the contrary, he says, very strong here. I received it, meaning through a revelation, the verbal form We'll have it in the noun form now. Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ or through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he said this in verse 13. For you have no doubt heard of my conduct in Judaism. That is, while he was still in Judaism as a practice. That is, Judaism is not what does this. It's a particular violent splinter group within it that Paul was operative in, a zealot-type group. He says, For you have no doubt heard of my conduct in Judaism, that I was persecuting God's own community. Persecuting is an imperfect action going on in the past, incomplete. But going on constantly in the past, I was persecuting God's own community. And the next word is much stronger and annihilating it. Annihilating it. Now, Paul wants this to be known because when God pleased, was pleased to reveal his son to Paul, that was what Paul was doing. That's what was Paul was thinking. That's what was motivating every action of the zealot Paul. He was annihilating the community of God, persecuting Jesus who reveals God and who is God. And that's when God said, well, this would be a good time to reveal my son to Paul. And so Paul's event on the road to Damascus is better called a call than a conversion. God called him. God, in fact, probably said, we better call Paul in the triune meeting of the Trinitarian God. He goes on then to say, and how I advanced, verse 14, in Judaism beyond Many contemporaries in my nation, 
because I was an extreme zealot for the traditions of my ancestors. But when he, who set me apart from my mother's womb, an allusion here to Jeremiah's call, who is the prophet to the nations, Paul's call as as an apostle to the Gentiles, when he, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, Nothing intervenes between Paul annihilating the church and Paul becoming an apostle except the sheer, pure grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through the faithfulness of another and not of works. Paul is always concerned in all of his epistles, especially Galatians and Romans, where he deals with it emphatically, not with a contradiction between the works of the law and the faith of the individual. He's always interested in the contrast between the works of the law and the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus by which we are saved by grace. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus in giving himself. We are saved through his faithfulness and not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. So we're asking the question both Wednesday and Thursday, where is boasting then? Where is boasting? And we located it. It's like trying to found, find Waldo. There's almost as many Pauls as there are Waldos in the Where's Waldo books. And they all look almost like him. But we're trying to find the brave new Paul. We're trying to find the Paul who is a totally gracious Proclaimer of an all-encompassing saving act of God in Christ. Not a moralizing, pious, and judgmental person such as represented by the teacher, this other teacher that he is constantly at odds with. And segments of his messages come out in Romans one eighteen through Romans 3.20, and Paul dismantles them. But notice what he says, when God, when he, that's speaking of God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal apocalypse again. That word keeps popping up. His son to me, in order to proclaim him to the pagans, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. How happy you are. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Paul received a revelation of Jesus Christ from the Father in heaven. Why would he have to go consult with flesh and blood? And this, I relate to this immensely, especially in this latter part of my teaching, because the gospel that I'm proclaiming, the gospel that I'm trying to see unchained in the scriptures Sometimes there is no one you can have standing with you, but the Lord stands with you, and a few stand with you. And I don't need to consult with flesh and blood when God reveals something to me in Christ Jesus, and neither should you. And Paul was actually speaking here. He didn't see that he had to go run to consult with the flesh and blood called the apostles in Jerusalem. He said, I didn't even go there till three years later. So if there's rumors that I had to go check with them to see if this was right, 
They're incorrect rumors. You might call them fake news. Paul had a lot of fake news about him. If you're going to preach the gospel effectively, there'll be a lot of fake news about you. It's called gossip. It's called slander. It's called maligning. You get used to living with it. You don't get a thick skin because it always hurts. But you are so viewing of your Lord Jesus Christ and identifying with his suffering that it doesn't deter you at all. If you think you're going to overcome slander by a tough skin, you have been overcome by slander by becoming tough and hardened in your heart. That's not the way to overcome it. It's to identify with the suffering Messiah because that's what God has done for us. He has incorporated us into the very trajectory downward of his son. I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him. I was buried with him. That's the downward trajectory. And also the upward trajectory. We were also raised with him and lifted up and seated with him together in heavenly places. When we say Christ crucified, we don't just mean Christ on a cross. We mean Christ having been crucified after proceeding from eternity as equal to the Father and the Spirit, as being incarnated in a point of time, as living a life of vicarious obedience for all of us, culminating with death, even death by crucifixion. And that Christ having been crucified means Christ now risen and ascended and seated. The saving act of God in Christ includes his incarnation, his life, his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. That whole thing is a revelation of God in Christ. It's a saving act of God in Christ, whereby God summarizes everything in all creation, all created reality, in his Son. That's Ephesians 1.10. God's gospel, therefore, can be called a revelation. God's revealing of his Son, and God revealing himself in his Son, and in an all-saving, saving act in Christ. This is the gospel. The Father revealed Jesus. Jesus is God. I did not consult with flesh and blood. What should be indicted here, incidentally, is not Judaism. That's part of the false interpretation of the gospel. Paul isn't indicting Judaism, but his conduct while in Judaism and his particular zeal to preserve its traditions, which led him to persecute the church of God, ironically, because he perceived the church of God as an existential threat to those traditions, as the threat that would wipe out those traditions rather than the fulfillment of them in Messiah Jesus. All those cherished traditions were actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He got this later, and he gave us a big 10-4 about it, Romans 10-4. Christ is the fulfillment of Torah to everyone who believes. That is, to all who have faith, they see Christ as the fulfillment of Torah. Paul, outside of faith, but in religion, in a Judaistic system, in a particular violent splinter group of Judaism, did not see, because he wasn't participating with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He did not see Jesus as the fulfillment 
of Torah, but as an existential threat to it. Now, he reaffirmed this in Philippians 3.6. Paul said, with respect to zeal, I persecuted the Messianic community. Then he adds immediately and rather ironically, with respect to the uprightness prescribed by Torah, I was blameless. Now, if the false gospel preached by the teacher in his cohorts, whom Paul calls dogs, mutilators, and evil workers, in Philippians 3, 2, quoting a passage from a previous letter that he wrote to Philippi that we don't have a copy of, but we do know a big section of it. It's 3.2 to 4.3 of Philippians. He called them dogs. He called them, which is usually what these pious false teachers called the Gentiles. They're dogs. And Jesus even played on that word in Matthew 15 when the woman came to him from Canaan and said, I want you to heal my daughter. She's vexed with a demon. She's devastated by a demon. And Jesus said, well, I didn't come here to feed the dogs. And she acted immediately and said, well, even the dogs get the scraps from the master's table. And he said, ah, there's faith. I've not seen it in all of uh, Israel. And all the people that claim to be Israel, I haven't seen it. But I've seen it from a Gentile pagan woman here. And so he, she got the point. She had wit along with her faith. Jesus was kidding her. And she understood that the Gentiles were going to benefit from what Jesus Christ came to do. That's what Paul's saying in Romans. So if the false gospel preached by the teacher and his cohorts, whom Paul calls dogs, mutilators, and evildoers in Philippians 3, 2, if they prescribe uprightness, as conformity to the commandments of Torah. Now, that's true. Uprightness, ethical uprightness to the Jew is rightly a conformity with the commandments of Torah. For the male, it begins with circumcision. And then if he fails in those mandates, there's the temple cult in which he goes to the temple and he makes the proper sacrifices. That's what Paul meant. He was doing all those things right. And there is uprightness. There is a prescribed uprightness. But what these teachers were saying is that they were prescribing uprightness as conformity to the commandments of Torah as the way to be justified in the final judgment. And that's not what Judaism taught. It's what this splinter group taught. Again, They prescribed uprightness as conformity to the commandments of Torah as the way to be justified or considered righteous in the final assize or assessment or evaluation. But if, my question is, if this false gospel preached by the teacher and his cohorts prescribed rightness, righteousness, as conformity to the commandments of Torah, as the way to be justified, then where does that leave someone like Saul of Tarsus, who was blameless according to the conformity to Torah, and yet tried to annihilate the Messiah and his people? Where does that leave him in the final judgment? Well, pretty much had it. 
In other words, to put it in language of today that you might be able to understand, where does that leave someone like Saul of Tarsus who is blameless according to the law and yet who lives to make an attempt to repeal and and replace the new covenant made in Jesus' blood? That's, in effect, what he was doing. He was trying to repeal and replace the new covenant made in Jesus' blood. So where does he stand if he's blameless according to the law, but he's persecuting the very people that are in God and in whom God is? Where does that put him in the final judgment? It simply illustrates the point, no flesh shall ever be justified in the sight of God by conformity with the works of the law. That's a, that's a quotation of Psalm 143.2, incidentally, an allusion to it. And so this is why in the, Paul says in Romans 2, now you can go there if you want, or you can stay in Galatians, because I'm going to go back there for a minute. This is very, has to be very carefully unfurled before you. That's why I'm being careful in the first phase of this teaching. And incidentally, we have out there a printout of a fragmentary, Highly unedited, I warn you in advance, 17th lesson out there because it summarized the strategy of Paul in Romans, and I think it'll be helpful to you. I'm going to try to do that every few messages. Paul says in Romans 2.25, circumcision indeed has value, he says. He's quoting the teacher. Circumcision indeed has value, but then Paul adds in 2.25 of Romans, if you observe Torah. But if you are a transgressor of Torah, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcision observes the regulation of Torah, that is, we could say by loving the Lord, as Christians were doing, then is not his uncircumcision considered as circumcision? Indeed, he says in verse 27, someone who is not physically circumcised, but who fulfills Torah will judge you, teacher, who are a lawbreaker, that is, at the judgment, in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. Now, the Jewish teacher that Paul is against says, a Jew is a Jew who is one outwardly through physical circumcision, a male Jew. But Paul says, in reply to him, in verse 28, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Instead, a person is, and this teacher would admit this, a Jew inwardly. A Jew is one who is one inwardly. In other words, even this teacher would say circumcision is a matter of the heart. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. But Paul adds... But it's by the spirit, not the letter. By the spirit, not the letter, whose praise comes not from men, flesh and blood, but from God. By the spirit. What the Holy Spirit does is incorporates you when God sees fit and pleases to reveal his son to you. And only God can reveal God. Man can't do it. I can't do it. When God sees fit to reveal his son to you, that's the moment when the Holy Spirit incorporates you into the trajectory 
of Jesus Christ, the son. His trajectory is downward. He comes down from heaven. He is incarnate. He lives a life of vicarious obedience for you. He gives himself on the cross for you. He dies. He's buried. He's raised. He's ascended. We are actually incorporated into the martyrological or downward trajectory of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I was crucified. He recognized by the Spirit that he was placed in Christ and shared Christ's history and trajectory. He said in another place in Colossians 3.1, we were raised together with him. In Colossians 2.12, he said we were buried with him. And that means by spirit baptism. We were also raised up together with him and seated together with him in heavenly places. Once you are, when God reveals to his son to you, the spirit incorporates you into the son's whole trajectory. He became as we are that we might become as he is. So, It's notable that neither Peter nor Paul received the knowledge of Jesus' unique identity from men. Neither will you. Both men received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ given by God the Father. Revelation 1.1, does this sound familiar with you, to you? The apocalypse, the apocalypse, apocalypsis, of Jesus Christ, which God, that's the Father, gave him to show his slaves, that's us, about what must speedily come about. What must speedily come about? I'm making all things new. That's what must speedily come about, and it's coming about. You see, circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. What does mean something is a new creation. That's what Galatians 6.15 says. And then he goes and talks about this people that God commends called the Israel of God. The Israel in God's eyes. Which are Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised, male and female, slave and free. That are baptized into the son's trajectory and into Christ. Now I'm building here slowly. Paul affirms that the gospel which he received also came by a revelation, not from men. Just as Jesus exclaimed to Peter that flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but my father in heaven, there was no need therefore for Paul or for Peter to immediately consult with flesh and blood. Peter didn't turn around and say to John, the son of Zebedee, do you think that's right? Do you think Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? After Jesus said, my father revealed this to you, did he have to go consult? Did Paul, Saul of Tarsus, have to go and consult with Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem to see if that revelation of God, of Jesus Christ, was correct or not? Now, that was the rumor, the false fake news Well, Paul ran up there, and he really got the gospel from men. He got it from Peter, and he got it from James. Paul says, I didn't even go there for three years. And when I did visit Peter, it was for two weeks, and we had a great time. We we shared. They were co-laborers together. 
There's people that think that the man Paul's after is Peter. That's absurd. He read him up one side and down the other in Galatians 2, 14 and 16. We're going to get there in a minute. But then it was over. So then, Paul had to be a little CEO-ish for a minute there. So this is interesting. In in Galatians, Paul, with respect to his confrontation with Peter at Antioch, said this. Look at verse 15 of 2. Galatians 2, 15. We've been here before, but I want to iron it down a little better here. Iron it out a little. Galatians 2, 15. He's still talking to Peter, in my view. This is my, I stand here in this interpretation. Because this is, he's still talking to Peter, and he says, we. I remember Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He realized that Christ was the fulfillment of all the law, that there, hadn't, there need not be a separation of Jews from pagans based on kosher laws or table laws. So Peter was rightly and freely eating with the Gentiles until certain entourage came down from Jerusalem and intimidated Peter. So Peter backed off. He stopped eating at the same banqueting tables and not stopped fellowshipping. He stopped going to the same restaurants that the pagans went to. He was a hypocrite. Paul, it tore it for Paul. Paul was witnessing this thing happening in Antioch, and he was going, what the hell is going on here? And then he saw Barnabas, his own partner, his missionary partner, get caught up in the same thing. He started going with Peter because the intimidation of these Jerusalemites, they were Christians, Jewish Christians, who still held to the kosher laws, and some of them even said, you must be circumcised to be saved, according to Acts 15.1. But Peter later takes them on. So he continues to talk to Peter, I think, in verse 15. He says, we, Peter, you and I, now remember, Peter received this revelation from the Father and didn't need to consult with flesh and blood, and so did Paul. So Paul is, after lambasting him, he's kind of saying, now you, Peter, you and I, we're Jews by nature. We're not pagan sinners. I don't know if they had air quotes back then. I doubt it because they didn't have quotes back then. But he was being a little facetious. He said, we're Jews by nature and not pagan sinners. But then in verse 16, listen carefully to this because this is what the Greek text speaks. But even as we know, even so, he said, even so, even though we're Jews and not Goyim, we're not pagans, even so, we know, oida, we know very well and don't need to be taught it over again, that no one is justified by works done in conformity with Torah's commandments. That's how I would stretch that out a little bit. Works of the law. It's talking about Torah, the law of Moses. No one is justified by the works done in conformity with Torah's commandments. But listen to this. But through the faithfulness... Of Jesus Christ, not through faith in Jesus Christ. We established that very lucidly, I think, in this past week. Because the word is ekpistios used here. It's used, ekpistios is used in Romans 1.17. That's the thesis verse of the gospel. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because in it, Romans 1.17, in it and by it, the righteousness of God, which is the righteous saving act of God in Christ, is being apocalypto, from faith, ek pistios, which is from faithfulness, ace piston, to faithfulness. This saving act of God in Christ is revealed in the faithfulness of the righteous one, as it goes on to say in Romans 1.17. For to illustrate this ek pistios, Paul says, for my righteous one, says God, which is Jesus Christ, my righteous one shall live, that's resurrection, because of his faithfulness. My righteous one will live because of his faithfulness. In his faithfulness, he was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. That's the same thing Habakkuk is saying, quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17. So the word ekpistios here doesn't refer to the, the righteousness of God being revealed from faith, your faith, to faith, your later faith, it refers to the faithfulness of the Messiah who in one sense was rewarded with resurrection because of his faithful obedience to the extent of death. I stand here saved because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not because of my faith in Jesus Christ. The word ekpistios used 12 times in Romans always has to conform to its first use. It's the faithfulness of the righteous one who died for the unrighteous ones, which is everybody except him in the human race. And therefore, it's the faithfulness of another. So listen to what Galatians 2 says in regard to this and in total agreement with it. Incidentally, There is, and I'm going to just give you a short lesson in exegesis. I don't care if it's Sunday morning, and I don't care about anything else right now except the Word of God. Got nothing else on my mind. Nothing else on my mind. Nothing. Nothing else on my mind. So we have ek, pistios. That's the English transliteration, ek, pistios, Romans 117. We also have dia. Well, I'm doing the Greek now. Dia. Pistios, or diapistis, so we could have it this way. And it means the same thing. Ek pistis means out from the source of faithfulness, from the reason of faithfulness. You are saved through this reason of faithfulness. Diapistios means the same thing, through the faithfulness. You are saved through the faithfulness of the righteous one. You are Justified or literally delivered and rescued thoroughly and even transformed by the faithfulness of another. Both in Romans 3.30, both of these come together when Paul says the circumcision will be justified ek pistios through the faithfulness as a result of the faithfulness of Christ. And the pagans will also be saved dia pistios through that same faithfulness. And that's where he's headed. He's headed toward one body of believers saved by the same faithfulness of the righteous one, the Messiah. So look what 2.16 says here. So in 2.16, he goes on to say, "For but we, so we, even so, even though we're Jews by nature, we know very well that no one is justified by works done in conformity with Torah's commandments, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, dia, 
pistios. I had it right the first time. Dia pistios, which is the same as ekpistios in Romans one seventeen and 3.30 and many other places. And this means the same. This also means the same as through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where did Peter stand later? He stood up in a council in Jerusalem boldly. And he said, it says in 15.7 of Acts, he stood up and he said. And what he said in 15.11, with many Jewish leaders present there, some of whom believed you had to be circumcised to be saved as a pagan. You had to be basically become a Jew in conformity with Torah to become a Christian, a, a completed Jew or whatever they called it. And so Peter stood up and he said, according to Acts fifteen eleven, he said, you know, our ancestors were never able to bear this burden of being justified in the final judgment by conformity to the law and by conformity to dietary laws and all this stuff. He said they were not able to bear it, and neither can we. So we believe, in Acts fifteen eleven that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, even as they are. We Jews are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus, which is the same as his faithfulness to the extent of death. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, he became poor for you, that you might be made rich by his self-chosen poverty. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is a synonym for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We believe, Peter said, and he made it official, that we are saved, us Jews, by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Even as they are, they are saved, these pagans, by the grace of our Lord Jesus. So Peter got this squared away, and that's what Paul is saying. We, Peter... You and I are Jews by nature and not pagan sinners. But even so, we know, he says in verse 16, we know well that no one is justified by the works done in conformity with Torah's commandments, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And with reference to Messiah Jesus, we believe that, not in order that we would be justified. He said, we believe that, Hina, here, we believe that we are justified by the faithfulness of Messiah. We believe this. So what are you doing attacking the gospel by your actions, by leaving the table with these pagans as if there's some kind of separation between Jews and Gentiles now, and it's made up of dietary laws? Did you forget that Jesus Christ bore that hostility and destroyed the wall of partition that divides us, made up of ordinances of Moses' law? Did you forget that Jesus is our peace? Did you forget that now there's one new man made up of Jew and Gentile, one new humanity? You are acting in accordance with an anti-gospel, even though you know this gospel, that we are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He does not say here, we know that we are justified through faith in Christ. He says, we know that we are justified or delivered graciously, unconditionally by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We know that. We believe that. 
and not by works of Torah. Because he then says in Psalm 143 too, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So the Jews believed, yes, we should be upright. Ethics. Is ethics a part of Paul's gospel? An enormous part of it. It isn't part of the gospel so-called based on justification by faith, which is a model, a reformation model that's had its day. It's done. It's been tried. It's been found wanting. It's all over. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not the faith of the individual sinner. That's the gospel. And the gospel that we are proclaiming. And like the song says, we're standing with our face to the wind on this one. It's kind of against the grain. I like Psalm 143 too, though. Do not enter in judge, into judgment with your servant. The psalmist was smart. He prayed to God, please don't enter into judgment with me because no one alive is righteous in your sight. No one alive is righteous in your sight. So don't enter into judgment with me. So God didn't enter into judgment with you. He sent his son and delivered him up for us all and delivered him up for our sins, and raised him up for our deliverance. Justification should better be translated unconditional deliverance because of the righteous act of God in Christ. So, third gear, no one alive, no one alive is righteous in your sight. No one including those who are blameless with respect to Torah. observance neither circumcised nor uncircumcised flesh is righteous in god's sight we'll see how this goes into the christian life in adamic ontology you can dress adam up and take him to church dunk him in water and make him say he believes in jesus and make him sing oh how i love jesus you can make adam dress up but he's still not what god wants a man to be the only way that God makes us into what he wants us to be is through participation in his son's faithfulness, which is by the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. Not by might, yours, nor by power, yours, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Paul slams that home in Romans 2.29. So neither circumcised nor uncircumcised flesh is righteous in God's sight. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails, means anything soteriologically. But a new creation, that's what means something. A new creation in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is what salvation is. So in 15.7 of Acts, I love this. Read it on your own. There's quite a drama unfolding here. Peter got up and said, says verse 7, Verse 10, now therefore, why are you tempting God by laying on the necks of the disciples that which neither our ancestors nor we are able to bear? That is, by obeying Torah to be justified. On the contrary, he says in verse 11, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Dia tes caritas tu curio Jesus. We believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they are. 
He doesn't say we believe we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by our faith. He said we believe that we are saved, are saved, infinitive, by the grace of our Lord Jesus, even as they are saved. By the grace of our Lord Jesus, his self-giving on the cross, or his faithfulness, his obedience. My righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live by his faithfulness because he was faithful to the Father for us, as us. He was rewarded with resurrection. We have a reward reckoned to us by grace. In other words, Christ included us all when he rose from the dead. We are saved by his faithfulness. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So why do Christians think it is their moralistic duty to go around and tell people about how bad they're sinning? Let's condemn everyone. Better read, reread Romans 118 to 32. And if you're going to bash any particular group in humanity, you better not use that as your verse because that ain't Paul talking. That's Paul setting up a straw man to knock him down. So then, you can see where some of this stuff's going. On top of this, Paul says, and we'll close with this, Galatians 2.19. Paul said, it was through letting the Torah or the law speak for itself that I died to its traditional legalistic interpretation, says the Christian or the complete Jewish Bible. It was through letting the Torah speak for itself that I died to its traditional legalistic interpretation so that I might live in direct relationship with God. When the Messiah was executed on the stake as a criminal, I was too. Paul is a man now in Christ. The righteousness of God or the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed from faithfulness, Christ, into faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ in the church participated in by the church, the messianic community, who are not to be seen in distinction from the world, but as a prolepsis of where the world will one day be, or where the world already is. To tell us, die. Let that sink in. When the Messiah was executed on the stake as a criminal, I was too. So that my proud ego no longer lives, says the Christian, or the, again, it's the CJB, the complete Jewish Bible. I'm more and more impressed with this version. But the Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by the same trusting faithfulness that the Son of God had. I wouldn't put it quite that way, but here is participation. Participation. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. A faithfulness that not only continued to the extent of death, but now continues in the church, in those who have been baptized into him. 
What an ease comes to us. An easy yoke is now ours. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. My burden is light. Because you're participating in my fidelity. So, Messiah lives in me now. And the life I now live in my body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit incorporates us into Christ according to the model of the gospel that supplants this justification by faith model, which mixes up Paul. The justification by faith model, incidentally, announces basically that Paul was confused, that he was incoherent. And so Paul has been actually rejected by a lot of the scholarly community because if you look at Romans and he says things like, if you strive for mortality and incorruptibility, God will reward you with eternal life. And then he turns around and says, there's none that seeks after God and we're justified by the faithfulness of Messiah. He, you can't say both of those things and be rational, coherent, or mentally stable. And so we've found out that what Paul is not doing is saying both of those things. He's saying one of those things out of the mouth of a false teacher. And he's saying the other out of his own mouth, which is a pure, unadulterated, unconditional, covenantal salvation in Christ Jesus, which I am arguing and will argue successfully that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally redemptive significance in Paul's gospel. Paul also called his gospel a mystery. The mystery, not the mystery of the gospel, the mystery which is the gospel. And what mystery is that? The mystery of God's will to sum up everything in Christ, in the heavens and on earth. Because by the peace that was made through the blood of Christ's cross, God reconciles everything in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible in him. The Holy Spirit incorporates us into Christ, and when he does, he incorporates us into the downward and upward trajectories of Christ. So when Christ was crucified, so was I. When Christ was buried, so was I. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Was I there? I was in him. Were you there when they laid him to rest in the tomb, dead? Yeah. Was I there? I was in him. Were you there when he rose from the dead gloriously and stood among his people again? Was I there? I was in him. Were you there when he ascended and rose and ascended to the highest place of heaven and sat down? Was I there? I was in him. And so were you. Raised up together with him and seated together with him in the heavenly places where once the Elohim sat. All right, after Paul, there's nothing else to be said in the scripture. Paul's gospel is about the saving act of God in Christ being unveiled from faithfulness, Christ's, to faithfulness, Christ's, corporately. From faithfulness, Christ's, individually, as the man Christ Jesus to faithfulness, ace pistis, to faithfulness of Christ in the church, participated in by the church. Faith is never in Paul. And we'll demonstrate it by a raw entanglement with the Greek guts of the text. Paul never makes your 
personal faith, the personal faith of the individual or the personal faith of humankind, the means of appropriating for oneself salvation. He always and without exception makes the appropriation of salvation connected to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and calls our faith a means of assurance of things hoped for. And that's where we begin to boast. We boast in the hope of sharing the glory of God and we boast in our difficulties. That's where boasting is now. So finally, in Christ, we are the new creation. Because the gospel received by Paul, by a revelation of Jesus Christ, by God the Father, we must say that Paul's gospel, therefore, is a revelation. In fact, Paul's gospel ultimately becomes a revelation of God in Christ reconciling the world and of all created reality in Jesus Christ. So to say, as I will commemorate tomorrow, January 23rd, 2017, the 45th anniversary of when this became revealed to me, because God was pleased to reveal it to me then, in 72. I will contemplate again that reality is Jesus, means that all created reality is summed up in him. And therefore, all creation is redeemed by him. And though that's inaugurated, it's not yet completed because all creation urgently waits and groans in anticipation of the day of the revelation, the apocalypse of the sons of God. For that triggers the liberation of all of creation. It's going to change. People say, so-and-so changed my life. What's that mean? They could have changed it for the worse. So-and-so changed my life. Well, really? Oh, yeah, they hurt me. This will change your life in the sense of your perspective toward all mankind will change radically. For you will see that one died for all, therefore all died. You will see a world already reconciled to God in Christ. There's no room for ressentiment, which is motivating so many today. The hatred, the irrational, vicious hatred that motivates people on both sides of the political spectrum today. The problems that are destroying our nation are not policies on the left versus policies on the right, but the hateful antipathy that fragments and polarizes this nation. That's what's killing it. And the root is Rasantamon. That is going to be uprooted in all who receive this gospel. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll grant us wisdom to be able to discern what is the truth of this gospel and to be able to discern also the false gospels that raise their ugly heads against it that have to do with human merit and human conditions and self-centered, self-interested man. We thank you, Father, that we can look to Jesus Christ and believe in a gospel that indicates to us very clearly that our salvation is due to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for us.